0: Thank you very much for having me here. Um, so let's see if I can figure out how this works. OK, so uh, again, I'm Matt and I'm with Aberdeen Standard Investments. And um, I thought I'd start things off with a little bit of trivia. So the question I posed to you is, uh, these three people, what do they have in common? So obviously, the person on your right is myself. You've got LeBron in the middle, and then Steph Curry on the right. So any guesses? Nothing? Okay. So all three of us were born in Akron, Ohio, actually. <laughs> so, I mean, and really, I mean, if you think about what are the chances that, you know, two people, two absolute greats, were born in the same small city in the same era, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And not even to mention that Steph Curry's pretty good at basketball, too. I mean, he's an amazing three point shooter. <laughs> uh, and see, my wife said that it wasn't going to work. Um, So what I I thought I'd do today would be just kind of go through the high-yield market um, and then talk about where we've been, where we think we're headed, and how we're going to position the fund for that environment. Um, So as a way of further background, so I've been in high-yield bonds for about 16 years now. Uh, I was initially with Standard Life. uh, That was about nine years ago. And obviously with the merger, it's now Aberdeen Standard. Um, So I, I manage the ACP fund with uh, Steve Logan and Ben Pakenham, they're located in uh, Edinburgh and London as well. So you know it's a, it's a very global uh, portfolio management team. So what I thought I'd do then is just take you through you know where the market's been. It's been a very eventful couple of quarters, as you probably know. Uh, so we reached the post-cycle tights of around 310 last October, and then immediately after that, you had the government shutdown, the Fed raising rates. Uh, Oil dropped into the 40s, and then obviously concerns about trade, and we blew out to about 550. uh, So pretty dramatic. Uh, What you can see then on the slide to your right is the flow data. So the flows have been very volatile. Throughout most of last year, you had a rotation out of high-yield bond funds into loan funds. People wanted the the floating rate uh, exposure, obviously with the Fed raising rates. Now, you know, fast forward to the first part of this year, and then with the Fed coming out and saying they're halting uh, raising rates, China uh, introduced more stimulus, and the ECB introduced some uh, bank liquidity facilities. You had all that money come back in. So about $12 billion came back into the fund. Now, I should mention in terms of liquidity, it's been relatively tight. Last year was kind of a disaster, to be frank, in the market. You know, at the end of the year, nobody wanted to take on risk, whether it be PMs, Or obviously banks. Uh, Balance sheets of banks have been shrinking anyway, but you add in the additional volatility and you add in the fact that it's the end of the year, it was very difficult to buy or sell high-yield bonds. In addition to that, you had very, very low issuance as well. So November and December were the lowest issuance months in 25 years in the market. So, you know, you fast forward this year, you have a better backdrop in terms of the Fed, and you have all this money coming back in. You have portfolio managers that, you know, haven't had any new issue to spend that cash on. Cash has been coming in in the form of coupons, and you have this, this big technical uh, rally. So, really, I mean, I think it's uh, safe to say is that this rally has been very technically driven, uh, at least in our view. You know, it's not your normal garden variety type of rally where the riskiest bonds, are the ones that rally the most. It's actually been quite a bit different than that. So if you look at the chart on the top, the top line is the spread of triple Cs, the bottom line is the spread of double Bs, and then that solid area is the difference between the two. Now normally when spreads are at this level, you see a good amount of compression between triple Cs and double Bs as people are chasing that risk. Well, that really hasn't happened uh, in this market. Uh, that, that differential has stayed relatively wide. Um, now you look at the chart on the bottom, and that's investment grade. And what's interesting is a very similar phenomenon occurred. The difference between triple B's and single A's remained relatively wide as well. And so it's not just the corporate credit market. You look at consumer lending, uh, tr- uh, subprime—very hard to get subprime loans um, at that level. But you know, higher quality borrowers, money was, was coming fairly easily. Look at the equity market. Lately, small cap has underperformed large cap. And what's interesting is, since last summer, the best performing sector actually was utilities. So this is either a signal, or a portfolio manager says there's an opportunity maybe for us to add risk uh, you know, in triple Cs. Oh, hit the wrong button. So. You know, what are we seeing in terms of fundamentals? And hopefully that'll get you to the answer of whether we think we should be chasing uh, lower quality uh, credits at this point. Uh, So as I mentioned, uh, you know, we did see a decent blowout in spreads, and then uh, it rallied back. And then obviously with the trade war, it's widened again. But we reached this year tights of around 350, and now we're out to about 390. Putting that in perspective, historically, The average high yield spread is around 550. So in my view, that really isn't that wide, particularly when you then uh, take into account the volatility we've had. There typically is a very good correlation or or a a component of of volatility that goes into the spread. And we really haven't seen much of that at all. Now, talking about leverage, so leverage recently has actually come down in the US market. So we're at around uh, four times. We were at close to four and a half times. But keep in mind, this is really due to EBITDA growth. Companies aren't really paying down debt. On the European side, we're actually seeing leverage increase a bit here. Now, in terms of defaults, defaults have been very low, less than 2%. And our base case is that they'll remain there. And partially, some of that is just the benefit of the fact that the uh, the new issue market has been very active over the past few years. Companies have been very proactive in terming out maturities. So you know, a few years ago, there was this fear of a maturity wall hitting where you had a lot of the debt taken on in 2007, 2008 for LBOs was all coming due around the same time. And there was some questions, you know, would the market be able to digest this, or would these companies in their current state be able to refi? So companies have been very proactive. Uh, they've pushed out a lot of those maturities, and they've done it at very low rates. So while leverage is relatively high, interest coverage remains fairly, uh, fairly strong, actually. But I do think it's worth mentioning you know, it is late cycle. And as you know, the old idiom, you know, cycles don't die of old age. You know, the longer they go, the more pockets of risk can develop. So that's something just to, to keep in mind. I, I will say then, though, that our base case, again, is a sort of low growth environment, which could be very conducive for high yield. You know, obviously, if you get growth too high, the Fed will have to act. That'll raise rates. That'll impact total returns. If growth is too slow, then you get defaults, which obviously isn't good. But I think going forward, I, what we're, I think, fairly sure of, you're going to see volatility. Uh, you know, we're already pricing in a rate cut later this year. So if we get a reversal from that, you're going to have volatility. Um, and then there's, that's without even mentioning the trade issue with China. So this is a really interesting issue. And you know, we've got economists globally, and you know, they're very, very quick to mention that their confidence level on this is very, very low, which is understandable. What's interesting is you know, the actual direct effect of the tariffs is fairly quantifiable, and they think that's around 4, uh, 0.4% of GDP. That's, that's the stuff that's relatively easy to measure, but then you have all the second-order effects, the knock-on effects. So, you know, business confidence, consumer confidence, things along those lines. The wealth effect as the stock market sells off, and that's unclear. So that could be another, you know, 0.2, 0.3% on top of that. Um, you know, in, in, in line with their their forecast, that still puts you in kind of a, you know, a low 1% type range. Not robust, but an environment that we think actually most companies will be absolutely fine in. So before I move on and, and talk about how we're positioning the portfolio, I thought I'd just kind of give a plug for the structure of close-end structure for high-yield bonds. Um, so what this here is the history of returns over the past uh, few years since 1985 or so. And what you can see is there's really only been six periods of meaningful uh, negative returns in that period. And each one of those was followed by a year of, of strong recovery. Right. So as long as you don't crystallize those losses with defaults or being forced to sell, you, know, you can generate a very nice return and some good income. Um, the other thing mm-hmm. I'll, I'll mention in terms of you know, the closed end structure is the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, liquidity uh, was tight in the fourth quarter. So, you know, I also managed some open-ended funds, and so a lot of that time was spent in those funds. Instead of looking for ideas, was I was having to sell. I was having to sell things at that, that times I didn't want to sell, and at prices I definitely didn't want to sell at. Well, with this fund, I didn't have that problem. So that's obviously, you know, a, a very uh, huge advantage in that. Um, the other thing I'd say is that um, we can capture a liquidity premium in portions of the market that do have less liquidity, you know, whether it be geography or, or going into smaller issues, uh, you know, maybe a $250 million deal that we think is interesting because uh, you, you know, don't, we know you're not going to need to be a forced seller at any point, as long as you get the credit right, and obviously that's, that's important. Um, and then the last point I make just is the cash drag. So, you know, if you have a high degree of cash because you're worried about outflows and then you have a strong market like we've seen earlier part of this year, you know, that can be 30 to 50 basis points right there, and, you know, in a low-yield environment, that's pretty meaningful. So, you know, what do we do with this market? Um, You know, and I, I kind of alluded to it before, we don't really feel like this is the environment to really be piling on the risk. So... What we started doing, and um, if you look at the chart on the top, this is since the third quarter of last year, is we've been actually taking down the risk in the portfolio uh, fairly meaningfully. So we've taken down triple Cs by about 10%. Now, that doesn't mean that we're avoiding triple Cs altogether. We are still looking for pockets of value. I'll give you an example. Uh, so surgery centers, which is an outsource, um, they do surgeries on an outsource basis rather than doing it inside a hospital. So that's something v- much, much more cost effective. It's got good secular growth. You know, it's more of an idiosyncratic risk. So you, know, you could argue, well, Medicare for all might have an impact there. But ultimately, we think this is where the, the industry is headed. So there might be some volatility around that. But ultimately, this is going to work. And it's a nice little company, you know, a good yield. And so we, we put that in the portfolio. Uh, the other thing we did was, you know, through the volatilities, we picked up some double B credits. So double Bs used to be almost nil in the portfolio. Now they're up to about 15%. So we got them at a good value, obviously good credits. And, and a couple of things we're doing in double Bs so we'll take a credit such as uh, GM, which is, you know, an investment-grade company, but we'll buy the bonds a little bit lower in the structure. So like, you know, a perp or something like that, so you get a little bit more yield. We're doing something similar with, with banks as well. So you've got a good, solid institution, but you're just dipping down a little bit in the capital structure of that to get a little bit more yield. Uh, the other thing we've done then, and I kind of alluded to this, is, you know, move away from cyclical exposed credits into more idiosyncratic. So. Energy exposure, so we reduced that from around 20% to around 12%. Material uh, bonds, you know, metals and mining, that sort of thing, roughly have that as well. So, um, you know, what else? What else have we been doing? Well, you know, as I mentioned, so my counterparts are in the UK, uh, in London and Edinburgh, and then we also, you know, as a global company, we've got you know 60-some people in Europe. We've got. Uh, 18 people in Asia between Singapore and Hong Kong. So, you know, what we're able to do is really bring all these ideas together and try to take advantage of them in this portfolio. So, you know, whether it be a Moscow bank or Indian uh, metals and miner, you know, we can look at those ideas. And what that does is gives us a lot of levers to pull. You know, all cycles aren't the same. Um, you know, the US is coming off some stimulus, whereas Europe has been weak for a while. But, you know, if the stimulus in China starts kicking in, um, you know, the trade war, absent that. Uh, if that's behind us, then they should feel a little bit of uh, an uptick in growth there. So you can kind of use that global opportunity set to find ideas across the board. Um, On the chart on the bottom, though, what you can see is that uh, over 50% of the portfolio exposure is actually in non-U.S. domiciled bonds. So like uh, the uh, U.K. market, for example, in British pound-denominated bonds, typically has a bit of a a liquidity premium with that because the high-yield market there is relatively small. Well, what we can do there is, you know, obviously, in this fund, we don't have to worry about outflows. We can capture that liquidity premium. and In many cases, it's a company that is actually a US domiciled company. Um, like Netflix issues euro bonds. We own those. Um, AMC, the theater company, they actually issue bonds in, in pounds. So we're able to buy those. We get a spread pickup because of that. And that w- what we do is we then we hedge that out. And what's interesting there is because you have this large differential in short-term interest rates between Europe and the U.S., we do is we put on a forward contract because we don't want to take currency exposure, and then we're able to capture between two and 300 basis points of extra income then from that forward. So, you know, you're picking up a meaningful amount of extra yield and income by doing that. Um, so, you know, it's kind of an interesting way to, to add some yield without adding a, a, a tremendous amount of, of additional credit risk. So I just say overall in this market, we really feel like the key is to avoid defaults. It's buying good credits, um, you know, making sure you do the work. Uh, we spend so much time with our analysts. just you know, It's the classic free cash flow walk. You know, show us EBITDA and show us how that results in cash flow. And then you stress it for you know, lower growth and just making sure these companies have the liquidity and have the cash flow to, to, to make it through. Because again, what really what kills the structure obviously would be defaults. So that's really what you want to avoid. So overall, i say, you know we have a, a cautiously constructive stance on the market. Um, you know, we, we have been reducing risk, but we've been increasing leverage a little bit on the margin. Um, in terms of leverage, we decreased it uh, below 30% last year, kind of ahead of the downturn, and we've been slowly increasing it back again above 30% since. But doing that in you know, better quality credits and trying to offset the l- little bit less yield with a little bit more leverage on the margin. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, I, I think overall, um, I think we're pretty confident, though, that we have, you know, the right team in place, that we have the levers that we can pull and, you know, have the, the, the process to really continue to generate some good income for this fund going forward. And uh, I thank you for that. And if you have any questions, Dan Buchanan, who, who will be, um, he has a booth out there. He'd be happy to uh, take your questions. But um, I can take some questions now as well if people are interested. I guess on the way back on the aisle, please. Yes, I wonder what your firm's view is of the likely duration and pervasiveness of the negative interest rate environment in Europe, and given the fact that you are anticipating a possible rate cut at least one time this year by our our, uh, central bank, do you think there's any likelihood of a negative rate environment in this country? the question then the question is Is the likelihood of a negative rate environment persisting? Yeah, so I mean, we're a lot of the world is already seeing negative rates. Um, you know, the one thing there's obviously a lot of debate of, and I think it kind of goes along with that question is, you know, the inversion of the yield curve and how meaningful is that? And you know, that's something that we definitely think, you know, even if it isn't real, I think one thing I'd say is usually you know, according to that rule, the recession will follow. I think it's like, you know, nine to 12 months later. But even if it doesn't, there definitely is a psychological impact to it as well. So it does weigh on on business confidence and and such. I mean, I think in terms of rates, um, the U.S. rates, we do feel like will be continued to be dragged down by rates globally. You know, there's only so much the US can do. There are some pretty massive dislocations that are already happening. You know, the one I mentioned was you know, what we can do on the hedging side. So you know, it, it is something that's worth watching. Um, but I'd say is, you know, that's the advantage of being a global firm is that you know, we're not pinned into any one particular geography. We can invest across the board and at different layers of the capital structure. Um, does that answer your question? OK, great. Uh, yes, sir. How do you deal with that from the standpoint of what you have and how you change the characteristics in the portfolio based upon, I guess, an overview that wasn't as nice as it looked when people were initially trying to get as many funds? Yes. So I think the question is, you know, how do you deal with the fact that some of the EMP companies, uh, in terms of shale, they haven't produced what everyone initially thought they would, right? And so how do you adjust the portfolio to that? And I, and I would say, in general, I mean that's correct. Um, you know, every time, you know, you have there's been, been a lot going on in the space actually. So what you've had is you had management teams. To give you some some background, historically, equity equity um, returns were very much driven by growing production, right? And so, managements then were then compensated based on production growth, so you know it wasn't profitability. The people weren't doing you know long-term sort of math, you know, uh, IRRs on this stuff. Uh, their incentive was to just keep drilling, drill baby drill, and so you kind of got what you got, and that kind of ended up in the bust in 2015 and 2016 as well. So now, after that long-term you know collapse in oil prices, tremendous amount of costs have been stripped from the system. Um, so, you know, break-evens went from $70 or $80 a barrel to, on average, probably in the mid-50s, and with better areas, much lower than that. <clears throat> so, you know, the question is, how do you invest? Well, I think the answer is, you know, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You've got to be extremely selective. There are certain areas that work and certain areas that are marginal, and you have to adjust the portfolio for the amount of risk that you want. Right now, we're, we're very conservative on that, so we're really focused on companies that are in the Permian Basin, uh, companies that have a lot of levers to pull in terms of taking out costs. So many companies can get a decent return at you know $40 oil, $45 oil. You know, the, the marginal cost of oil is probably right now in the 45 uh, or sorry, $55, $60 range. So you know, those companies can be okay. And then in terms of structurally. Boards have changed the incentives of management teams. And along with that, or maybe because of, or probably the, the opposite really, is because uh, equity investors now want free cash flow. So every time a company comes out and pushes out that free cash flow timeframe, because as you probably know, these companies initially burn tremendous amount of cash, right? And so it's really the companies that are able to actually generate cash now that our equity market is, is uh, rewarding. So long way of saying that you have to be careful you have to know which acreage you're in management teams are extremely important um, and under, make sure you understand what the break evens are of the company and how the management is incented um, so there are definitely some companies we like and some acreage areas that we like uh, so like I give you an example like Moss Creek small company uh, but it's in the Permian in a very attractive part of the Permian next to some some uh, High class, top shelf type operators. So we have confidence in that one. So, well, great. Again, I mean, I'm, I'll probably be around. And then Dan Buchanan is out there too, and, and he can uh, help you with questions. So, thank you very much.